0: This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center. Funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation.
1: If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. You're listening to the
0: Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time... Listeners, part one.
2: I think we all have had experiences of being
3: distressed or frightened, being worried when we were by ourselves and um, our minds were just spinning and didn't have anyone to listen to us. And then had an opportunity to have a good friend, listen and understand um, and not interrupt and not give advice and not correct and not challenge.
0: Professor George Fitchett at the Department of Preventive Medicine at Rush University in Chicago. For many of us, listening is the most basic act of friendship. And it can mean so much when we set aside quiet space really to hear out the other person, even if we differ with them. It's a way of acknowledging their essential human dignity.
2: I think actually one of the greatest acts of generosity is to be able to listen to another person without judgment, without getting, getting your own views, opinions, and biases in the way.
0: Joan Borisenko is a cell biologist trained at Harvard Medical School. She has published widely on the Mind-Body Connection and today practices as a spiritual director in Santa Fe, New Mexico.
2: It's a very generous act to give people the time, the space, the mindful attention for them to be able to say whatever is on their mind. And essentially... One of, the, one of the characteristics of us mammals, us listening, <laughs> mammals is the deep desire to connect. That attachment to another human being is uh, a very important characteristic. Or if you're a lion, your connection to another lion. But mammals are configured to require connection to be healthy and to be happy. And to be listened to uh, with that kind of generous compassion, what it does is it it activates the, what's called the affiliation systems in the brain. The emotions that connect us, those are activated. And you can feel it immediately in your body. The body starts to um, react, and the body becomes happy or Focused or depends on the emotion, but there's no stress They're all a feeling really of deep connection.
0: So is this your experience when you feel genuinely listened to?
2: Absolutely, I feel it makes me feel grateful it makes me feel actually very loving and loving toward that person Uh, for their generosity I think when I'm listened to deeply what you're doing right now I relax and I move out of the stressful part of myself the part that maybe wants to defend something and into a part of me that has the courage simply to be honest to be present and to be myself
3: what's important is creating the state of being in which it's actually possible to listen, first of all, to yourself and then to another human being.
0: And that means a frame of mind in which the listener intentionally enters a practice of self-reflection to quiet the restless mind and grant a measure of calm to the body. Psychiatrist James Gordon at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C.
3: All the different forms of meditation are ultimately devices, ways of coming to, into a state of relaxed moment-to-moment awareness. And that state is really the precondition for listening, for listening to anybody, let alone listening to anybody with compassion. Because if you're anxious and agitated, you know, you're very busy hearing your own thoughts, your own concerns. You're not really able to focus on someone else. So I think this is the, this is the missing ingredient for coming into that state of being able to be with another human being. Dr. Gordon is
0: clinical professor in psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown University Medical School. He's the author most recently of Unstuck. Dr. Gordon leads mind-body programs intended to heal the whole person for traumatized children and their families facing crisis. He spends a lot of time listening to what people are going through.
3: What I see is people who are often dispirited by the conditions that they're living through. So whether it's somebody who's dealing with a diagnosis of cancer or somebody who's been through a a terrible collective tragedy like the hurricanes in Puerto Rico or the shootings in Broward County at Stoneman Douglas, they feel demoralized, dispirited. They have a sense that the 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 rug of life has been pulled out from under them and they don't know they don't know who or what to trust and to have faith in anymore a certain sense of abandonment abandonment by often by the universe you know, who who am i what can i count on anymore i mean they feel uh, lost often they feel that the structures that sustained their lives were just in in puerto rico and A guy in one of the towns on the countryside, one of the sort of deputy mayor, was telling us about how during the hurricane, people, many people went, this is not a a psychiatric word, but they went mad, really. They they didn't know what to do. They were running around. They wanted, you know, they couldn't communicate with people in their family. They didn't know how to help. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. And they, they just kind of lost themselves. Crisis can be profoundly disquieting. And in some cases, it
0: comes without warning, like the horrific school gunfire that erupted at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida in 2018, leaving 34 dead and wounded.
4: Unfortunately, I lost two people in my class and six were hit. I was on the wrong side of the class and no student should have to cover themselves with a deceased classmate to survive. But I was that student.
0: People in these scenes are hurting.
3: We observe people in that condition, sometimes right after a catastrophe or in the case of working in the middle of the war, in in the middle of that catastrophe, and we help them come back to themselves. We help them quiet their biology uh, using meditation or biofeedback. We help them... Shake loose the tension and stress in their bodies with active techniques like shaking and dancing or fast, deep breathing. And then we help them access their imagination and their intuition. And so they ask themselves what they may, we may use something like a wise guide image where people imagine going to a safe and comfortable place and imagining that a guide comes to them who can help answer questions. And then we leave it to them to ask the questions that are of importance to them. And sometimes there are questions that seem very mundane, like, uh, you know, how do I get enough food to eat, but very important for the next week? And sometimes it is, how do I regain my faith? How do I live after the death of my father or my son or my daughter? So we encourage them to find their own pathway to, to... understanding and connection and to any spiritual beliefs or forces or experiences that can sustain them. We open the door for them. So when
0: someone feels that a terrible event has shaken their faith or in some cases may have caused them to feel like they've lost their faith, how do you as a caregiver approach that
3: and help them? Well, first of all, I relax. So I'm not trying to impose anything. I think it was Keats who talked about an irritable reaching after fact. And I think there is an irritable reaching after fact that we have in our our mental health and our health professions. And I resist it. I'm not trying to define anybody. I'm trying to let them be and create a space for them to share and talk about and explore and ask and request what they need. So in order to do that, once again, I need to relax and be present with them no matter how overwhelming the situation is. And then they will help me see how I can be of help to them. And I have to get over my own sense of uh, being overwhelmed or despairing. Can it be
0: traumatic for you as the provider to go into a situation where... Everybody around you is reeling in the wake of uh, some horrible development.
3: Well, it's definitely unsettling, uh, and what I've learned to do is to relax with it. And the people in those situations uh, have often taught me how to do that. I'll, I'll just tell you one one story. I was in uh, this goes back a long time, eighteen years or so. I was in uh, we'd been working in Kosovo with people who were traumatized both during the war in 1998, 1999, and then after the war. Based on refugee accounts, war crimes,
0: including burning of homes, forcible displacement and summary executions, were committed by Serbian forces against Kosovar Albanians. Some civilians landed in refugee camps.
2: I have father sick, yes. mother sick, my sister has four children. All sick. Three, three nights. No.
1: Yes. <laughs> Look. What, what, what can I do?
2: In Tirana, you have family. No problem. Look.
1: Yeah. Um.
2: Children sick. Poor children.
3: And I came back uh, after the war was over, and we began to work in a region called Suareka, where eighty percent of the homes had been destroyed, and twenty percent of the kids in the high school where we were doing a lot of work had lost one or both parents. And one day, one of the high school teachers, whom we had trained, brought me up to visit this old couple who were living way up in the mountains on a farm and uh, just in the middle of nowhere. It took us an hour to get there, and uh, outside of Suareca, which itself was rural. So we finally arrive, and there are a bunch of burnt out buildings, and there's there's a compound, a kind of rectangle of a compound with a number of buildings. And there's one building that survived. And sitting on the porch are a very old couple. And they have a a little oil lamp. And uh, you can see the burn marks everywhere. And they invite Murati, who's the teacher, and my colleague Tina and I to sit down. And we sit with them and they begin, somehow they miraculously, in the midst of this, wasted territory. They they make some coffee for us and they serve us coffee. So we're sitting there drinking the coffee and they tell us the story of how they watched 21 members of their family massacred. Uh, Children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, all of whom lived in the compound by Serbian paramilitaries and then watched the animals also be slaughtered. And I'm sitting there sort of Really, quite overwhelmed by what they're telling me, and I say so. And I say, you know, I'm I'm so honored that you would tell me what what has happened to you, and that you would share this with me. And I'm so sorry. I'm so deeply moved by this terrible tragedy. I so said, I wish there's something that I could do for you. And they looked at me, and both of them. It was done through a translator. Uh, and they then started smiling. And they said, oh, Dr. Gordon, we are so happy to have you here. We know that you are listening to us. And we know that you are going to share our story with others. And that that is all we could hope for. That's all we want.
0: exploring how the profound practice of listening to people in distress can promote healing and help to restore their sense of wholeness. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. There's a kind of mystery in sitting calmly, patiently, attentively and tuning in to someone else's experience, someone else's story and life journey. Reverend John Harrison is chaplain and director of spiritual care at El Camino Hospital in Mountain View, California,
4: near San Jose. I think that the act of listening is a sacred act that requires us to empty ourselves of ourselves so that we can be fully present to another. Active listening is not waiting for one's turn to speak. And what does it mean to be fully present to another? It means that you're putting their needs, their wants, their interests above your own be fully present means that one is willing to put down one's own cares to care about another.
0: For those serving in healthcare care facilities, a typical workday, even when hectic, offers moments when
4: staff can pause, however briefly, for reflection. We have a thing where we We call it gelling in and gelling out. It's really just the proper cleansing of one's hands. That's a perfect opportunity to begin the process of not only cleansing your hands, but also cleansing your minds. As you're there, either at the sink or whether you're using this magic gel that they give us. (laughs) Hand sanitizer. That's right. To take that time to offer up a prayer to the God of your understanding, take that time to empty yourself of your commute to work, of your child who has just lost their minds, of whatever might be an obstacle. Just take that time while you're cleansing your hands to consciously clear your mind and set the proper stage because I suggest that it's better To not pay a visit to someone who could potentially be in need if you're not available to completely and fully hear them. You're better off balancing your checkbook and clearing your mind. I once called on a gentleman who was a patient in the hospital, knocked on the door, introduced myself as we are taught to do shared with them that I was from the spiritual care department, and if he was interested and available, I'd offer myself for a brief visit. And he looked at me. He was a crusty, salty type of guy. He looked like the kind of gentleman that, would have, that you would imagine that would have a corncob pipe stuck in his, between his teeth. He narrowed his eyes, squinted, And he said, chaplain, God, I don't want to talk about God. And I took a breath and I said, fantastic. I've been talking about God all day. What would you like to talk about? He looked at me. He didn't really smile, but I think that their smile was there. He says, well, come in if you want. Sit down here, I'm watching the game on on uh, the mounted television in the room. Now, as quiet as it's kept, I don't really like sports. (laughs) But it was an invitation, and I took it, and I sat down, and he was staring at the TV, so I did the same. I didn't look at him, I put my focus where his focus was. And after an eternity of seven minutes, he said, life stinks. And one of the most brilliant conversations I've ever had about life and the meaning of life arose and we never once invoked the name of a deity. As we were talking, he said, look out there. Do you see that tree? I said, yeah, I, I do, sir, I see it. He said, wait a minute there do you see that? And it was a bird. I don't know what type of bird was. It was a, a large bird. He says, "Every day that I see that bird, I know I'll make it through this day." I mean, it was it was a profound thing. If I would have spent my time looking to hear the buzzwords from a particular religious zip code, I would have missed what brought meaning to him. He's saying that if he knows that the creatures of nature are sustained by an entity greater than themselves, that there is something that was going to help him make it through the day. So I I look to find out what's important to one by way of their faith, however they want to describe it, no matter what it is, Uh, christian buddhist is islam wiccan whatever it is then once i understand what their faith is their interest is then i'm looking for the importance of it is it something that that's deeply and profoundly meaningful for them or is it something that they remember from their childhood and it arises in times of 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 stress and and, and turmoil. I'm also interested in their community. Do they have a community? Is their community a community of faith or is it a community of practice? Is their community rooted in their family, friends? Are they homeless in the community or uh, are those who share the struggles of the street with them? Or are they truly without community? And then the final thing would be, after hearing those three things, what would I assess my response should be? What actions, if any, should I follow up in order to be of of assistance to them?
0: Here's Irene Harris, a psychologist at the Minneapolis Veterans Administration Healthcare System. She's also on the faculty in counseling and psychiatry at the University of Minnesota.
1: Deep listening is about emptying myself and allowing the person to whom I am listening to guide the conversation, to show me what is important, to show me what the goals are, and to release that person to discover more about themselves and their context.
0: In fact, says Irene, she attempts to make sure the conversation is not about her. What she brings to the encounter is her training in how to be a skilled listener.
1: I will say that the times in my life that I have had more struggles as a person while practicing as a therapist have forced me to strengthen that skill. Of course, the personal
0: lives of professional listeners like Irene Harris inevitably seep into their work lives. So part of her training at the VA is to establish clear boundaries between what's related to the veteran she's serving and what's not. And by focusing on the human being she's helping, it keeps it fresh with a sense of purpose and meaning.
1: There are a number of things that I do. One of them is that I just get used to really looking forward to the time that I spend with my clients. I take great joy in what I discover about people as I am working with them on exploring their experience and helping them find ways to recover. And I don't want that joy to be interrupted by anything about me. I'm having too much fun to let other things intrude. Another thing that I do to keep my listening pure is my own spiritual practice. So generally speaking, before a client comes in to see me, I, even though I have been practicing since the mid-1990s, I still pray before I see clients. Um, I don't think anybody around me knows that i do that. I often don't even bow my head or close my eyes, but I am always looking to what is divine within me to help me approach my client with what in Christian practice we refer to as agape, the love, respect, and dignity we give to every person because every person is in some way an expression of what is divine.
0: Are you asking for God's guidance?
1: What I am looking for when I pray that prayer is an empowerment to my own clarity and my own very deliberately conscious belief in the profound value and dignity of every human being.
0: Very hard Mm -hmm. at times to do that.
1: I can remember on one occasion in particular, I worked with a client for probably two years seeing that client weekly and that client found occasion to trash the religious group of which I was a member every single session
0: Is that called pressing your buttons?
1: I would say that that is pressing my buttons he had no idea that that was my group Um, and I worked really hard at seeing what was going on for him how he perceived that group, how he perceived that group as being hurtful to him. Um, And while I might have been of the opinion that that was a misperception, it was very much beside the point of why he was seeing me. And I needed to consult a supervisor and get some clarity about, do I bring this up as a therapeutic issue? Is it sufficiently related to this client's goals that it's something that I need to address? And as we looked for the client's goals in that interaction, it really wasn't a piece of what he was coming to me for.
0: Psychologist Irene Harris at the Minneapolis Veterans Administration healthcare system, along with other caregivers, experienced in deep listening. Listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Maggie Mantis, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Connie Goldman. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, Please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening.
1: If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher.